Uh, good morning again. Grab your Bibles and open to Psalm 11. Psalm 11 will continue through our uh, series of the Summer in the Psalms, and today we find ourselves there in Psalm 11. This is the very Word of God. To believe it and to obey it is to believe and obey God himself. To disbelieve it and to disobey it is to disobey God himself. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Father, it's been a glorious day already this morning as we've gathered together as your redeemed people to proclaim your greatness and goodness in our prayers through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to encourage each other in our fellowship time and greeting of one another. Lord, we love each other because you have first loved us and we love you as well. Lord, would you be kind to us now and open our ears that we may hear the truth of your word. Open our eyes that we may see its glory. Open our hearts to, to believe and to obey. Encourage us this morning from your word. And we know that you will be faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, friends, we live in a time when the foundations are being destroyed. Attacks seem to come from every angle, and it seems that there will be no quarter. Attacks on the family, attacks on marriage, attacks on the very meaning of what it is to be a man or a woman, attacks on words themselves, stripping them of their meaning, trying to empty them of what they actually say or mean, attacks on children. In this day and age, it seems, especially in California, that the womb is one of the most dangerous places for a child to be. And those that God has given to us in his great design to protect us now are those that we must be protected from. The foundations are being destroyed. Do you see the cracks around you? 
in all that God has designed. Especially in this great escalation of the last five years. My wife and I were having a discussion just last night and saying, five years ago, we wouldn't even have some of these discussions. But the cracks are there, and we see the foundations are being destroyed. And so the question comes, what are the righteous to do? What are the righteous to do? The psalmist David lived in the time much like ours, a time of political upheaval, a time of danger, a time of threat. And here in his psalm, he has an answer for us. And he himself stands as an example of what the righteous will do when the foundations are being destroyed. We'll receive an answer to that question today in in three main points. Number one, we'll see David's trust. Number two, David's temptation. And number three, David's testimony. So let's get started. Number one, David's trust. Notice how the psalm begins. David says, In the Lord I take refuge. David begins his psalm firmly declaring his trust in the one true and living God. In the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Notice the all caps. This signifies the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. The God who, when he revealed himself to to Moses, declared, I am who I am. The God who, when he revealed himself to Moses, said, I am who I am. He is the self-existent one, the one without beginning or end, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who needs nothing, who lacks nothing, but on him we depend for everything. He is the ultimate sine qua non, without which not. Without God, not, nothing, zero, zilch, fill in the blank, (laughs) nada. God is autonomous. God is independent. God is transcendent. God is immutable. God is never changing. He declares, I am who I am. This is the doctrine of the aseity of God. God is self-contained within himself. He does not look outside of himself for, for any need. There is no lack in God. He declares, I am who I am. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God. Matthew Henry says in his commentary about this section, referring to David's beginning here, he says, Here is David's fixed resolution to make God his confidence. In the Lord I put my trust. Those that truly fear God and serve him are welcome to put their trust in him and shall not be made ashamed of their doing so. And it is the character of the saints, that's you and that's me, who have taken God for their God, that they make him their hope. Even when they have other things to stay themselves upon, yet they do not. They dare not stay upon them, but on God only. Gold is not their hope, nor are horses 
and chariots their confidence, but God only. And therefore, when second causes frown, yet their hopes do not fail them, because the first God, the first cause, is still the same, is ever so. The psalmist, before he gives an account of the temptation he was in to distrust distrust God, records his resolution to trust in him as that which he has resolved to live and die by. David puts his trust in God and God alone. In the Lord, I take refuge. Refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. The Lord is David's refuge, his security, his fortress. When the attacks come, when the rug is pulled out from under him, where does David go? Where does David turn? What does he do? He turns to the Lord who is his refuge. Friend, brother, sister, when the attacks come, where do you turn? When the attacks come, when the trials come, when the illness comes, when the tragedy strikes, when you're faced with temptation, where do you turn? Where do we turn as a church? Where is our hope? Where is our trust? Where is our defense? We must remember the words to the old gospel song that I grew up singing my rural church in Texas. Living below in this old sinful world. Hardly a comfort can afford. Striving alone to face temptation's sword. Where could I go but to the Lord? Where could I go but to the Lord? Where can you go but to the Lord? Where can you turn? Who can you trust? We must sing along with Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. David turns to the Lord. David runs to his refuge. Notice also, David says, I will trust in the Lord. David himself proclaims that he will trust. I will trust in the Lord. Your wife can't trust in the Lord for you. Your husband can't trust in the Lord for you. Your mother cannot trust in the Lord for you, children. Your father cannot trust in the Lord for you. David did not talk about his mother or his father or brothers or sisters or uncles or aunts or family. He said, I will trust in the Lord. Have you put your trust in God today? Are you yourself putting your hope and trust in the Lord Yes, we as a church can proclaim together, we trust the Lord. Yes, he is our God. Yes, we pray to our Father in heaven. But there is a point at which, friend, that you must put your hope and trust in God. Your hope and trust in God. Will you do that today? David, trust in the Lord. But hear me now. Trust in God is no guarantee that there will not be temptations. Trust in God is no guarantee that there will not be temptations. This brings us to our second point, David's temptation. We could subtitle this, The Attack of the Wicked 
verses 1 through 3. Let's look at it again. He says, how can you say to my soul, David speaking here, and then he quotes, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David, it seems here, is surrounded by counselors who are giving him advice. When they see the threats to his life, the threats to his kingdom, when the enemies press in, they begin, they begin to give advice, and it is wicked counsel. It is wicked counsel. Brothers and sisters, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who are your closest friends, your closest advisors. Those of you who are single, be supremely careful who you marry. Do not be unequally yoked. We shouldn't be unequally yoked in our marriages or in our friendships. Your, your best friend must be a believer because when you face challenges, they will give you advice and they'll say, you know, when I was faced at my school with the situation of a transgender student and the principal coming and telling me, you need to start calling her a him, and you know my story, I told her, I can't do that. Why not? Because I love Jesus. But friends at school said to me in private, come on, what's the big deal? It's just a word. My friend said, I'm only a few years till retirement. What's the big deal? Just go along. Just give in. Just cave in. Just, just, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who love righteousness, who love you, who love you. So David asked the question to them. He says, how can you say to my soul, how can you speak to me this way? How can you say to my soul? And then he quotes their advice. And what is their wisdom? Their wisdom is to run away. Run away. I can't help but anytime I hear that, think of Monty Python. <laughs> run away. <laughs> run away. When the threats come, when the forces are opposed against you, run away. And they say it like this, flee like a bird to your mountain. Birds are, are flighty, easily frightened. I was watching a child the other day chase a pigeon around. The pigeon doesn't stand there and say, stand back, young man, right? <laughs> what a pigeon, the little, little bitty child can barely, can barely even walk. He can't feed himself, clothe himself, change himself. <laughs> He's not a real threat, but he gets it close to the pigeon. The pigeon, right, flies away. Or like a sparrow, Birds are flighty. They're easily frightened, often simply walking through a field in Texas. Uh, you, you would send up flocks bursting into the air, winging their way to safety. This is, this is the advice of the counselors. This is the temptation that is placed before David. Flee. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Fly away. And where are they encouraging to fly? To your mountain. To your mountain. To your place of perceived safety. David, get out of the hot seat. Don't stand. Don't fight. Don't trust God. Fly. Fly. 
we would do well to notice the pattern of their counsel and their taunt. Because of the wicked's might, method, and menace. Listen again. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, and here they're, they're telling, this is why you should flee. Because of the wicked's might, method, and menace. Listen. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. Like a man of war is the, the might of the wicked. He has his arrow knocked to the string. And you are in his sights, David. You're a tiny, flighty bird. You better fly before he shoots you from the sky, before he takes you down. The wicked are mighty in this world. The wicked are strong in the flesh. The wicked's perceived strength is, is mighty and powerful. The psalmist as he quotes them, they're trying to warn him. They're trying to be rational. They're trying to be wise. Listen to us. You need to get out of here. Don't you realize you could lose your job? Don't you realize you could lose your house? Don't you realize if you don't send your children to that school, they won't be socialized? Sitting at a party just this week, a young man, all these older folks are sitting around. This young man of about 19 is sitting there, waxing eloquent, giving his wisdom to all these people sitting around and telling us all about how he had warned a young friend that had a a child of four years old. What? Your child's not in preschool yet? Don't you understand? Your child's not going to be socialized. He's going to be so behind when he gets into public school. You really have got to. I bit my tongue. I was bleeding probably. <laughs> it, was a, it was a gathering of friends, and I just not, I, I did pray and felt this was not the time to rain on a 4th of July <laughs> picnic. No. No, yes, the, the, the wicked are mighty. And their perceptions. They, may, they might look strong to us. Listen to their method, though. Their method. What is their method? They, they shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Isn't that interesting? They shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The wicked do their work under the cover, under the cover of darkness. Lies. Deception, secrecy, twisting the truth. For what purpose? To destroy the upright in heart. Brothers and sisters, we are people of the light. We are people of the light. We don't walk in darkness or fellowship with those who do. We are people of the light. But the wicked aim at us, shoot at us, schemes in the darkness with twists and lies in the same way that their father, their father speaks. When he speaks, our Lord tells us, when Satan speaks, his native language is 
the lie. The lie. When we're raising Hayden in our household, when, back when there was actual TV, I guess there is some still TV, you always had these things called commercials, right? And so you'd be, anytime you watched a show, the commercials came on, and you have to watch this commercial. Uh, this is probably even before you could mute the TV. I don't remember. I just remember the commercial come on, and we would play with our son. Catch the lie. Catch the lie. If you use this soap, you'll be handsome and clean. <laughs> you'll get all the girls. You'll be whatever. It's all worth it, right? Use this card. It's great. You'll be better. Ontological well-being, right? Catch the lies. Catch the lies. They shoot at the dark, at the upright heart. Finally, their menace. Verse 3 says this. Their menace or a taunt. If the foundations are destroyed, <clears throat> what can the right... <clears throat> excuse me. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? This question may come at David in a fierce manner, a sarcastic manner, an attacking manner. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Or maybe it's coming from a fretful manner. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Either side, fierce or fretful, both are faithless. Fearful or fierce, both are faithless. From the beginning, the prince of darkness has been lying, twisting, destroying, deceiving, attacking, and attempt to destroy the foundations. The foundations of all that God has designed, his word, marriage, family, children, government, the church, here is the, the taunting, faithless question that they pose to David. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it is a good question. A question that we should be asking of ourselves at this very moment, at this very time that we providentially find ourselves in history. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David answers them. Listen to his testimony. We need to hear this. We need to hear him. We need a holy perspective right now. This very moment, this very day, this very week when you go to work on Monday, you need a holy perspective. My prayer is that David's testimony will be ours as well. David's testimony. Listen to his answer. Here is how David, the psalmist, answers the question from the wicked. Verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. David says, stop looking around and start looking up. The Lord is in his holy temple. David here is not referring to the temple in Jerusalem, but to God's temple in heaven. The dwelling place of God. The Lord's holy temple where the redeemed of all the ages will one day worship him forever. It is what Isaiah sees in, in Isaiah 6. Listen, 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. His glory is, is consuming it. It's, it's, there's no more space for it. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What happens when these angels, when these seraphim cry out like this? The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. When faced with the glory, the power, the might, and the majesty of the holy God of heaven, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. David proclaims, when the questions come, when the attacks come, the Lord is in his holy temple. And then he says this, the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. What is a throne but the seat of a king? This speaks of the absolute sovereignty of David's God. The absolute sovereignty of David's God. He is seated on his throne in heaven from where he rules in absolute authority. Absolute authority. This is hard for us to, to comprehend because many of us have children. <laughs> Do you rule your children with absolute authority? Please come here. No. I said come here. Uh-uh. Please speak to the pastor. Say good morning. Please speak to so-and-so. Mm. Absolute authority, Father. Yes, you do. You rule with absolute authority. No, you don't. I can't even get my, my, my dog to come. <laughs> come here. Come. Come, come. Come here. Come here. We also don't live in a country that has a king. We don't have a sovereign. We have a president who we elect I laughed one time, and I've probably mentioned it before. One of my favorite bumper stickers, I say in jest. I was behind this lady driving. It said, elect King Jesus, Lord of your life. <laughs> What's wrong with that? You don't elect a king. Back to Monty Python again. I didn't vote for you. <laughs> you don't vote for a king. We don't elect him. He elects us. What is a throne? But the seat of a king, absolute sovereignty, absolute authority, that's how he rules. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch of the universe that King Jesus does not declare mine. Think of it again. There is not a square inch of the universe that King Jesus does not declare mine. Jesus is Lord of math, physics, science, philosophy, theology, 
anthropology, any kind of truth there is, he is the Lord of. Jesus is the Lord of two plus two. Without Jesus Christ, there would be no math. We can talk more about that later. You can see me in the theology corner later if you want to discuss that. In the beginning, God, on the first day, he did this. On the second day, he did that. On the third day, he did this. Without God, there is no math. There are no rules governing the universe. Chaos, disorder is all that is there. Only two years ago, the state of Oregon decided that they needed to erase from the public schools what they deemed to be racist math, which was to get rid of the idea of absolutes that two plus two equals four. Racist math. Two plus two equals four. How could that be racist? Well, because of it has absolutes. We all know that there's no such thing as absolutes. So, of course, two plus two can equal seven, five. When faced with this, I asked someone, have you read 1984? <laughs> That's obviously not scripture. But there's real truth there. Two plus two equals four. Jesus is the Lord of all, and he is God, and he rules with absolute authority. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you hear that? He works all things according to the counsel of His will. God hasn't asked you what your opinion is about math or about marriage or about the church. He is working all things according to His will. And the last time I checked, all means all. All means all. got to find my place. Also in Psalm, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 33.10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. God rules over all things. And listen, God never tries to do anything. Just think of it. God never tries to do anything. We tell our children, and it's a, it's a good thing to say, go, go for it. Give it your best effort. At least try. At least try. God never tries. He sent his son to rescue a bride for himself. Was there any chance that Jesus would fail in his mission? That Jesus would come back with his hat in his hand, kicking the, kicking the dirt or winding his watch and saying, man, God, Father, I tried. I tried, but she's not having it. She turned me down. 
When Jesus was on the cross coming to give his efficacious sacrifice to, to rescue a bride for himself, to redeem her, to save her, was he on the cross with his fingers crossed saying, boy, I hope this works? No. God never tries to do anything. Everything that he decides to do, he accomplishes. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Whatever pleases him, he does, and whatever he does, it occurs. And he frustrates the plans of the people. Your plans don't frustrate our Lord. It's a word that I say a lot, and it frustrates me that I do. <laughs> I don't like saying it, but I, say, I, I notice that this word comes out of my mouth often. I'm really frustrated. That frustrates me. Why am I frustrated? Because I want something and I can't get it. I want something and I can't achieve it. I set a goal for myself and I, and I fail. And it frustrates me. The guy in traffic frustrates me. Come on, merge everybody. Merge, right? Just merge. In or out. What are you doing? I'm frustrated. He won't do what I'm telling him to do. Brothers and sisters, this is a glory. Our God is never frustrated. Our God is never frustrated. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So what's David's testimony? Number one, God rules. Number two, God sees. God sees. The psalmist says, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. God sees it all. He knows it all. God doesn't learn. God sees and God knows. God knows every hair on every head. It's not harder for him to know the hair of Jeremiah or the hair of Kevin or Steve. Who else is bald in here? <laughs> why, is that, why is it not difficult? Because God doesn't count. God doesn't count the hairs on your head. God knows. God knows the hairs on every head. God doesn't count. The, he's up there, you know, tallying. Okay, oh, oh, another sparrow fell. Oh my goodness! Stop falling, you little sparrows. I, I, I can't keep up. God knows. He is omniscient. He is all knowing. He never learns anything. God sees it all. He knows it all. He sees and he knows. And as God looks down upon man, he sees him. And he tests the children of man. It reminds me of, of playing hide-and-go-seek with children. All dads have done this, I'm sure. And I can remember playing with Hayden when he was very little. And, and he would go and hide. And I can remember him hiding behind the couch. And I can see over the couch, and he's right there, right? And he's all, <laughs> you know, and he's just there hiding. And I'm like, and what, do I, what does the dad do? Walk around, uh, where's Hayden? Where, you know, walk around and act like you can't see. And finally, you know, he jumps out, here I am, right? And they go, let's play again. Where does he go hide? Same place, <laughs> right? Where, right? I feel that like our Heavenly Father is like that with us, right? We're hiding, even Adam. It all begins there, doesn't it? Where's Adam? <laughs> Where? Oh, there you are. 
God sees. He sees it all. He knows it all. God rules and sees. But this should be a great comfort to us because he knows you and he hears you. It's a terror for the wicked. It's a terror for the unrighteous. It should bring great comfort to you as a believer. God knows you. He knows everything about you. God sees you. God hears you. Verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord is testing us, trying us, disciplining us. Why? Because He loves you. He loves us. The Lord tests the righteous, but, the psalmist says, His soul hates the wicked and the one who who loves violence. Psalm 5, 4 to 5, listen again. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That's one of the imprecatory psalms, one of our psalms as well. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 7, 11 to 13, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. You have a whetstone. It's sharpening. God will sharpen his sword. He will prepare his sword for battle. He'll get his sword ready. He has bent and readied his bow. Here, the psalmist shows that God himself has his bow aimed and ready. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And Charles Spurgeon says of this, he never misses his target. He never misses his target. So David's testimony here is that God rules, God sees, God judges, God punishes. Look at verse 6 in our passage again. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Raise your hand if that's on a magnet on your refrigerator. On your, uh, you know, verse of the day, rip it off. Oh, let him rain cold. Oh, that really speaks to me. That's, oh, that's just another prayer I want to start praying. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Hmm. This is the truth of God's word. Old Testament, New Testament. And sometimes we, we shrink back from God's word when we deal with what are referred to as the imprecatory psalms. So we're going to take a little bit of a, a tangent just for a moment to talk about the imprecatory psalms. First of all, when we say imprecatory, imprecate, imprecate means to invoke uh, judgment, calamity, or curses upon the enemies of God. Okay, to pray, to invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon the enemies of God. And so the imprecation is a curse. That's the noun verb. It's a curse, but the, the adjective is imprecatory. So the imprecatory psalms are those where, where David or the psalmist is calling for God's wrath and judgment upon the wicked. And the question is, sometimes for us, we think, that doesn't sound like God, that doesn't sound really Christian. Am I, should I be saying those kinds of things? Listen to an article I found that was super helpful to me 
from uh, Pastor Sam Storms called 10 Things You Should Know About the Imprecatory Psalms. I can't read the whole thing, but I encourage you to Google that and, and, and take a look at the whole message. He says this regarding the imprecatory psalms. Number one, what we read in these Old Testament psalms are not emotionally uncontrolled outbursts of otherwise sane and compassionate people. Imprecations such as these that we've listened to, and there's, there's over 40 imprecatory psalms in the psalms. So 40 of these places where David calls curses or the psalmist calls curses or wrath or judgment upon the wicked. They are calculated petitions, not spontaneous explosions of bad temper. It's not David on a bad day. Oh my goodness, ah, doggone, you know, no. Certainly, there are examples in Old Testament history and prose narrative of actions, attitudes that are sinful and not to be emulated. But the Psalms are expressions of public worship to be modeled. Sometimes even for our call to worship, you may have seen we have an imprecatory psalm as part of our call to worship. It is the Word of God, and it should be embraced. Number two, we should remember that in Deuteronomy 27 to 28, the Levites pronounce imprecations against Israel if she proves unfaithful to the covenant. So it's part of God's law as well that Israel must remain true or these imprecations, these curses would come upon the people of Israel. Number three, these prayers are not personal expressions of personal vengeance. In fact, most imprecations are in the Psalms written by David, perhaps the least vengeful man in the Old Testament. He's never uh, asked that, that, that he be allowed to get even or pay back his enemies. His prayer is that God would act justly in dealing with transgressors. Number four, we must remember that imprecations are nothing more than human prayers based on divine promises. These are human prayers based on divine promises. One is simply asking for God to do what he's already said that he would do. For example, in Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, I never knew you, when he speaks to hypocrites, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is it wrong for us to pray that Jesus do precisely that? Lord, will you be true to your word? Will you cast out those who are lawless? May they never be in your presence. We've already seen that the dwelling places in, in, in heaven is, is there with God and that evil may not dwell with him there. You understand, if, if evil, evil were allowed into heaven, heaven would not be heaven. Number five, imprecations are expressions provoked by the horror of sin. David prayed this way because of his deep sensitivity to the ugliness of evil. When David sees the wicked around him, he's mortified, he's disgusted, he's, he's horrored, he's... he's, he's so challenged by it that he speaks out in righteousness against unrighteousness. Number six, the, the motivation behind such prayers is zeal for God's righteousness. Listen, God's honor, God's reputation, and the triumph of God's kingdom is our willingness to ignore blasphemy and overlook evil due to a deficiency in our love for God and His name. When the sinner 
that you're friends with uses God's name in vain, in, in vain do, you, do you recoil? Are you horrified? Are you, are you frightened for him? Because God will not hold him guiltless who misuses his name. I can remember one of my best friends years ago who, who was teaching our children on uh, the Ten Commandments said it. He talked to one of his co-workers. He worked in, like all of us do, in the world and in construction and in aerospace. And he's working with some guys who often would use the Lord's name in vain. And because we'd spent time on that passage, he's, he stopped him and so gently, so, so kindly said, let me show you what it says in Scripture. The Lord will not hold guiltless the one who uses his name in vain. And the guy said, wow. I didn't know that. So the, for the Christian, there's no, there's no OMG. There's no oh my God except for when you're crying out to your God. Something that's worked for me in the past when I've dealt with it was to say, explain to young people especially, what's your mom's name? This is the way I would do it. Jeff Lewis, what... What's your mom's name? Kathy. Can you imagine when his dear mother was still alive, if Jeff was out there working in the backyard, hurt himself, and he yells, Oh, my Kathy! She comes out and says, Son, what, what, did you need me? No, I'm just out here working. What, why did you call me? I wasn't calling you. Walks back inside, Kathy, 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 oh, Kathy, oh, my Kathy. Son, please don't use my name like that. You're to use it in respect and honor. You're not to use it in vain. You may cry out to me. You may plead for me. You may glorify or praise me, but you may not use my name as a curse word. Brothers and sisters, we hear it. I know we hear it all the time. I'm thankful that some of the home shows that we like to watch, they'll try not to say it. Oh, my gosh. Gosh. It's so great. I don't even like, oh, my gosh. Could our reaction to the imprecatory psalms be traced to the fact that we love men and therefore favor more than we love God and his? Number seven, another factor to keep in mind is that David is the king. And being God's king, he is God's represent, uh, representative on earth. Thus, an attack on David was, in fact, an attack on God. Number eight, the prayers of imprecation are rarely, if ever, for the destruction of a specific individual, but almost always of a class or group, namely the wicked or those who oppose you, O God. And so not calling for a specific you know, sinner at my school to say, God, damn him. God, rain sulfur upon him. God, but upon the wicked, on those who have turned their backs fully and finally on the Lord. Number nine, we must keep in mind that in most instances, these, these prayers for divine judgment come only after extended efforts on the part of the psalmist to call the enemies of God to repentance. These are not the cases of a momentary resistance to God, but of unrepentant, recalcitrant, incessant, hardened, and haughty defiance of him. 
And that is why here, when you hear us pray, when we pray for our, our governor, we pray for our president, we pray for those who, who have yet to know God, we pray for their repentance. One way to, to change an enemy is to turn him into a friend. And we have to remember, don't we, that all of us at one time were enemies of the Most High God. And truly, for the, for the grace of God, go I. Number 10, David knows that he needs spiritual protection lest he hate God's enemies for personal reasons. And so he concludes Psalm 139 with this prayer about his own heart. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there are any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our prayer as well. But can we pray the imprecatory psalms? Yes, and we should. We should agree with God that those who are, who, are, who are fully and finally wicked and have turned their hearts against God and, and against his people, we pray for the judgment of the Lord to be upon them. So David's testimony, he says that God rules, God sees, God judges, God punishes. And he says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And so the, the message here for us is, is that we're not to over, overreact to the wicked's actions. We're not the ones who, who bring judgment upon those who are wicked. Notice David says, let him reign. Let God do his work. The Lord himself says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No one gets away. No one is going to be unjudged. Matthew 10, 28 says this, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is it that we're to fear? Who is the him there? Is that Satan? Are we to fear Satan? Who is, who is our Lord talking about? Himself. God. Right? We're to fear God. Remember, family, remember, church, Satan doesn't throw anybody into hell. Satan himself is thrown into hell, correct? Yes. Do not fear those who, who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Psalm eleven seven, the psalmist continues, he says, for the Lord is righteous. For the Lord is righteous. His justice, his wrath, his grace, his love, and all, all, all that he is is grounded in his character. The Lord, David says, the Lord is righteous. What does that mean? It means that God will judge every sin that has ever been committed, either in the fires of hell or on the cross of Christ. Every sin. He loves righteous deeds, the psalmist says. And then he ends with this. Great comfort. The upright shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. Those who have put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ will one day see him. See him as he is. See our Father God sitting upon his throne. See his Son be with him and behold him face to face. Pastor Jeff read from Revelation, and I'll read from here. Revelation 22, 
For they, who is the they? They is, is us, the redeemed from all, all history. Every, every single person who has put their hope and trust in Christ, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Everyone has a mark upon their forehead. Every single person that's ever lived, that's ever been born, has a mark upon their forehead. It's either one mark or the other. The mark of the beast or the mark of our blessed Savior. And we will see his face. I'm a little jealous. I'm a little jealous of our brother, Tim Tyndall. He crossed the finish line. So much reflection on him at his memorial yesterday. How can we even begin to comprehend the joy that our brother is experiencing right now? He's one of the most joyful, happy, good-spirited, playful, godly people that I've known, and I was just thinking, man, what is his joy like now? <laughs> and what is bringing him such great joy right now, even at this moment? Tim Tyndall, our brother, is beholding the face of his Savior. He is seeing his face. And that is how David, the psalmist, ends this section. What's the question? The question that they posed to him is, what will the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? What will the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? The answer is, is this. We will trust in God. We will trust in God. We will not be afraid. We will not run away. We will not shrink back. We will not be quiet. We will not be pressed into, into the service of different agendas. When the foundations are being... No, we will trust in God. And when tempted, we will remember our testimony. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we admit that many times, just like your psalmist David, just like your king, we are tempted to be fretful, to be fearful. We are tempted to fly. We are tempted to be, to be quiet. Lord, help us. Help us as your people. Thank you today that you've helped us even this day by encouraging us through the preaching of your word to remind us who you are, that you are our refuge. Lord, thank you for being our refuge. Thank you for being our mighty fortress. Thank you for being our 
God. It's your son's, our Savior's name we pray. Amen.